You are about to listen to Defending Black Girlhood Podcast, and I'm your host, Lelada G. I'm a black mother. Look, I don't care what Mookie May May and Lakeisha oh, Mama does. I'm not Mookie May May and Lakeisha's uh, mama. Tripping. A preacher. Give me the key of D. And Mary had a little baby, and his name was Jesus. A life coach. Look, girl, if Chump don't want no help, Chump don't get no help. Oh, and a singer. And I, and I, and I, no, I ain't a singer. Most of all, I'm an advocate for black girls everywhere they are. And I'm telling you right now, I am unapologetic as hell about my fierce advocacy for black girls to be safe in their homes, schools, and communities. Join us for courageous conversations about topics that most impact our girls and be inspired to do your part in defending black girls in your part of the world. Some information may contain graphic, violent, or explicit language. Listener's discretion is advised. racism doesn't really come that direct it's usually through policy it's usually like it's never it's passive aggressive remarks it's never that straightforward because to me to have the right to vote for someone who doesn't understand me who doesn't represent my experience who doesn't give a damn about my experience that's not power to me i'm looking at power right now as i look at you three black women running. Our experience plays a huge role because black women are the most underserved, underrepresented uh, demographic here in America. And it's Mm -hmm. astonishing how much we have to go through every single day. To coin Pastor G's, when we exhibit or demonstrate justified anger, it's still not enough. But they justify all of the things that happen to us in the name of the law. I'm like, oh, okay, um, people, people have power and our voices are power. So the more voices we have, the more power we have. I think Madison in many ways loves black men. I'm just going to pause for a moment for Jesus to come in. <laughs> Madison loves black men. They love black men in leadership. They support black male leadership. But it becomes something different when black women begin to assert themselves. All the atrocities that we have with we still don't have the right to say I don't like that I don't want that America could be better I'm angry we still don't have the right to be angry it's almost as if there is an expectation to say thank you America for all you have done for me thank you all for joining me for another episode of Defending Black Girlhood podcast Today, I'm really excited for this conversation that we're about to have with three candidates for the Madison City Council. And the topic today is, does Madison love Black girls? I am talking with J.L. Curry, who is running for District 16, Nikki Conklin running for District 9, and Ayomi Obuse, who is running for District 8. And so I am really excited about that. And I just learned recently 
that in 2019, District 8 elected its first woman in 20 years. Because what I was wondering was, did any women in your districts, have there ever been elected a Black woman in your district? I was pretty sure I knew the answer to that, (laughs) but I was just checking. No, so I would be the first Black immigrant elected. Wow. Wow. All right. All right now. Okay, so we're going to dive in. I have several questions for you all, but really want this to be a great conversation, free flow. Because of my work with Defending Black Girlhood and Black Woman Heal, I'm definitely coming from that lens, but we're going to have a wider conversation as well about what it means to have you running. So I'm going to start off with the question is, what is one word that you would use to describe your Black girlhood? And Ayomi, since you're the closest one on this conversation to a Black girlhood, why don't we start with you? Hmm. Uh, revolutionary. Ooh, okay. Tell me more about that. I think, you know, my Black girlhood experience is, is something that was very transformative. I, you know, wasn't exposed to my history because I lived abroad. And then when I was able to really dig in deep and, you know, learn more about my culture, my history, my people. I just felt like it empowered me as a Black woman. And then the world just became like living. Everything I was doing was a revolutionary act. Self-care was a revolutionary act. And so I think that empowerment of knowing that my ancestors were all warriors and their blood runs through my vein, that they're survivalists and I have to continue the fight um, makes me feel like... You know, my word is revolution. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. JL, how about you? Oh, man. No pressure going after Iomi. Uh, <laughs> not to take it down a pessimistic route, um, but I would say limited. Tell me more about that. So I, uh, too, am, oh, I won't say born. Uh, I am born and raised. Iomi, I, I don't know if you are, but um, have been in Madison my entire life for the state of Wisconsin. and. Because of that, it was almost a protection, but also a uh, a hindrance. So growing up in a Black household, my parents from an early age, you know, they gave me the, your pencil shorter than your peers talk and mm-hmm. always prepared me like there was this hypervigilance that I had going out into the world. But they did a really good job protecting myself and brother from like the harsh realities of what it truly means to be a Black girl and a Black boy living in Madison. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, I had opportunities. I do have certain privileges. You know, I had both parents at home. They both were working. I grew up in a house. Um, but still with that, I felt limited. And I think one one more telling thing is when I got pregnant with my son at 16. I was a very mm-hmm. strong student, but um, there wasn't a lot of other pregnant teens at school. And there was this pressure to put me into SAPAR, which is the high school for parenting or pregnant uh, youth who are still in school. Um, and it's like, you know, let's go to Madison College. We're not going to look at these four-year schools. So mm-hmm. the capacity has always been there, but I felt like my true essence and revolutionary self has always been limited here. Mm. Wow. Thank you so much. Nikki, how about you? Empowering. Okay. Tell me some more about that. Um, I'm going to go back on what JL said, because I actually grew up in a small white town um, of 1500 people. And I was the only black girl that went to school there. So 
For me, I knew I was coming to Madison when I turned 18. I was going to the big city and everything was going to be great. And <laughs> I quickly found out how that was not true. Um, there was still a lot of racism and discrimination. So for me, coming, you know, as this little Black child that was discriminated against and, you know, I went through all these racist events that took place in my life, you know, that's really made me the person that I am today. So I'm grateful to have that empowerment to be able to stand up and really fight for my people and, and really represent my people and to know that I can empower other people to really uh, stand up for themselves. Absolutely. So you talked a little bit about growing up in a smaller town. You're the only black girl. How much does your black girl experience inform who you are today and what you hope to bring to this race and to this role? Um, I mean, well, I've always been a black girl that hasn't changed no matter where I lived at. Um, mm -hmm. I've always, I've always been the black girl. So it's just really came full centered because I had to take it upon myself to find out who my ancestors were, where, where they came from. You know, mm -hmm. they, we didn't, we didn't have that luxury and I didn't have that luxury of being able to connect with somebody, feel somebody on the same level that looked like me, that talked like me, that had the same background as me. So really it was, um, I had to do a lot of work on my own, um, you know, but thankfully my dad was very involved in my life. My family's big. Everyone supported me and wrapped their arms around me and, and definitely encouraged me to be all that I could be, regardless of where I came from. Just where I came from doesn't make me who I am. And so mm -hmm. I've made I've made who I am, Nikki Conklin. I made that path on my own. All right. Say your name, girl. <laughs> Nikki Conklin. Say your name. <laughs> <laughs> Iomi, I'm going to ask you that same question. How does your Black girl influence, you know, who you are today and, and what you want to bring to this office? Well, I think, you know, many Black girls that I am around, um, and I still consider myself a Black girl in many ways, um, I think it's, you know, that urgency I think is bring, we're bringing to the table because one thing that I've noticed, especially here in Madison, is that there's a sense of hopelessness. When you see, for example, Matt Kenny still working after he shot an unarmed 19 year old, when you see lack of movement, when you see complacency, it kills your hope. And that makes you not even want to come out and protest because you're like, it's not going to do anything. But I think what we're seeing in a lot of young people today is the fact that, you know, we're seeing these problems in real time and we haven't had so many experiences that have limited our hope. And so we're bringing that sense back to the table. We're bringing that urgency. And I think, you know, our experience plays a huge role because Black women are the most underserved, underrepresented uh demographic here in America. And it's mm -hmm. astonishing how much we have to go through every single day. And so I think it's important when we write legislation that we are there at the table because then we know exactly all the ways it's going to affect us and our families. And um, that's what we need at the table. We need someone that understands how the legislation is going to play out in real time. I love so, it. Jay, I'm going to ask you the same question. I'm not going to be pessimistic, but I'm going to always keep it real. And keep so, it real. Just kind of in that limitation that I felt as um, a younger person, you know, being raised in a, in a 
not to say we don't have an era of this now, but it's you respect your elders, you respect what they say mm-hmm. because they've lived here longer than you and you just stay quiet. And so I think in that limitation, just curiosity budded. And I was always wondering, I've always had this critical mind of like, okay, I know we do this, but why? And connecting that to everything from religion to the way my parents, some of their values that they were instilling in us. And so that curiosity has really pushed me, I think, just into speaking my truth and being bold and taking mm-hmm. those steps that uh, I haven't because fear has seized me or I've allowed, you know, well, what is Madison going to say? Or I might be too mm-hmm. loud or I'm the I'm the angry black woman all the time. And, you know, trying to put putting those reservations aside because that curiosity has grown now into bold leadership. It's grown into mm. confidence. Um, and it's grown into overwhelming support too of, of folks who I think all along kind of saw, okay, this is rising. Something's mm-hmm. rising in jail. Her time is going to come. And, and I feel like that's now. So I love it. I love it. So there's a historic number of Black women running for political office in Dane County. According to my count, there are 13 Black women who are running for Alder, for judge and for school board. And I couldn't be happier because I'm a type of person that I don't get with that whole thought, black people need to vote, black people need to vote, that it's the be all of what we've been fighting for, for freedom. Because to me, to have the right to vote for someone who doesn't understand me, who doesn't represent my experience, who doesn't give a damn about my experience that's not power to me i'm looking at power right now as i look at you three black women running and iomi you said something that i think is right on the money you know because i know the three of you have done organizing in the community have been in leadership roles on key committees and done you know important work in our community and i love that and it's important to do that but i think what's really important, Ayomi, is something that you said. You said the word, the L word, legislation. Like to have the power to influence the laws by which we are governed by. Now that's what I'm talking about. I can, I can vote all day and all night around that when I believe that people are there for me. So why now? Why are you running now, Iomi? Why is this your time? So, you know, the decision to run was something that I didn't take lightly. Um, when I came here, I came here in 2016 as a, you know, Black immigrant family, that was a pretty scary time. Um, and we didn't really understand what that meant for us. Just politically, there was a lot going on. And I wanted to just understand the system. And so I began interning at high school because I was asking so many questions. My teachers were like, let me just give you resources. And I started interning at the city council and going to public hearings and just behind the scenes. When I ended up going to UW-Madison, I'm a current student right now, I started interning at the state capitol and then this summer was on a congressional campaign. And it was all efforts to just understand the system because I didn't feel like, you know, our, my basic knowledge would be able to keep myself, my family safe. And then we saw the protests and we saw mm-hmm. the rioting. And, you know, I've done a protest before. I did one at West High School just down the street, but this was different. And 
I really felt like I found my voice. And all of a sudden, I was shaking, I had a megaphone, and but I still spoke. And that was huge for me because it was like, I'm still shaking, but I'm still able to speak. And I that's a privilege a lot of people aren't able to have. And so yeah. I really want to use yeah. my voice to amplify the voice of the community because every single day I have holes in my shoes, um, went to DC, went to Colorado, protesting, organizing, building coalitions. And in Madison specifically, we have this idea of progression. Madison's so liberal, mm -hmm. Madison's mm -hmm. so progressive that we're not able to see oppression. But once mm -hmm. that glass mm -hmm. mirror was broken, we're able to finally, okay, you see that? Madison isn't as good as you thought it was. Now we can address it. Now we can pass things and mobilize people. And as an organizer, that's what I do. I help to build communities. I help to mobilize people. And we need that in legislation. We need that in our city council. I love it. Now, did, did you attend West? Yes. <laughs> oh, see, now that's what's up. Hail to West High graduates. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Uh, West High graduates are just always so special. So that's really wonderful. Now, you you mentioned a couple of times that you are from an immigrant family. Where is your family from, Ayomi? So my father's from Nigeria. My mom is mixed. She's Ugandan and she's um, African-American. Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Um, JL, why you, why now? Why me, why now? Uh, you know what's funny? Um, the last two years I've been intentionally seeking out and partaking in any opportunity, professional development opportunities to advance my understanding, knowledge, and also like, is this a realm that I want to step into? And so last year, I most recently completed a fellowship with the New Leaders Council, which is a nonprofit um, organization dedicated to creating the next age of progressive leaders, basically. So caters to a younger professional group, um, it's not necessarily directly politically affiliated like Emerge and similar programs um, catered to women. Um, it's not catered to by populations. And that's kind of I, I held out on jump, getting into the opportunity because a lot of times it's like, OK, I have to fit myself and my black girl into this box, which yeah, mm -hmm. I need to be here. But the, the process to get there is so unbecoming of me yes. <laughs> or what I what I represent. Say and that. So, I honestly was planning this year to um, try to volunteer. Can't well, <laughs> I thought we'd be out of COVID by now, you know. But get volunteer experience, kind of like an internship. That's what I did before I jumped into social work. Can I make this? Can I make the internship? So then there became a prime opportunity where um, my current alder was not reseeking election. I looked back at the past couple years. Um, and he's run unopposed. And since uh, our last longstanding alder, Denise DeMar, was in District 16, there really hasn't, it, it doesn't seem like there's been a lot of interest in folks running. And so I naively thought, oh, you know, like I might run opposed. This is in the bag. Like, you know, cool. I got this. Like I had a little bit of confidence. And then, you know, there was five other opponents. <laughs> I was like, oh, all right. <laughs> oh, my. Um, we're down to, to, a, to a party of four now, so still heading into a primary. But um, I think, again, even thinking about quantity, uh, at the beginning, Nikki and I, um, our races looked slightly different, but now they look pretty similar, being the only women in our races, the only Black women, um, and then having all male opponents with two white 
seemingly cisgender identifying males and then a male of color from the BIPOC community. And so um, I was scared, you know, I I've never run a campaign before. Folks on the east side or, or my neighborhood, even though I've lived here for 10 years, I'm so immersed in work and other activities, I'm really not part of my own neighborhood and community. So I'm like, oh man, there's all these other people. One of my opponents is very, very well connected in the political um, landscape. And so when I started talking and calling folks and saying, hey, I need support, putting together my kitchen, letting folks know that I was running, it was really the support of folks saying, J.L., why not you? You are the perfect candidate. You are the only mother. You have lived here your whole life. You've escaped poverty or the threats of it being a teen mom. You've worked your way to now give back to your community. That is exactly what an yes. alder should be on this city council and what yes. that's in. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm walking in it. I'm taking that leap um, and learning a lot on the way, but uh, I don't believe that I'm not here for a reason. Yes, I love it. How about you, Nikki? Well, I would say that um, since living in Wexford Ridge for the last 10 years, I've been deeply involved with the Lucia Community Education Center just as long. And from that, I've had many, many opportunities. And one of the opportunities was called the Neighborhood Organizing Institute, which we refer to as NOI. Um, NOI is a leadership development program for grassroots leaders, advocates, and community organizers like myself. It really lays down the foundation of organizing, the 10 steps, what your tasks and tactics are. And, and we even got to go to some common council meetings. We got the little taste of what a meeting would be like. We got to meet some of the alders. So that being involved in that program really sparked my interest. And I'm like, oh, okay, um, people, people have power and our voices are power. So the more voices we have, the more power we have. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, the alder in District 9 has been the alder for the last 19 years. That's long enough. Oh, too long. That's too long. <laughs> Uh, you know, because people get complacent, they get comfortable, right. and he's not serving his community. He's not reaching out to us. Uh, and I say us, I'm talking about the marginalized communities here in District 9, which there's plenty of them. So um, if you know Shady, you know Shady. Um, she was a part of NOI also. We went through many trainings together and she had always, always been, Nikki, you need to run for Alder. You would be great. This is what the community needs. You know, she has always been supportive. And then my Alder in District 9 called her a derogatory name. And when that tragedy happened, she immediately texted me like, Nikki, now is your time. We need you. We got to get him out of office. And I, I, I completely agree. I don't feel like anyone needs to be representing me and, and you're downgrading women. So right. that really pushed me even more, even though the next morning we woke up and one of the candidates had already announced in September that still didn't deter me. You know what I'm saying? I said, I, I need to get my stuff together, get organized and make sure that I can do this. Cause again, I've never ran a campaign before. Mm -hmm. And it was just the simple fact of having the support of my community, being involved in my community and being just deeply rooted and knowing as a mother, as a black woman, I want to be represented by someone who looks like me and what yes. better person than myself, someone who's living, working and raising her children 
in the most segregated district in the most segregated state. Wow. So that's why I felt like it was now is my time. Okay, that's a good enough reason. So the title of this conversation is Does Madison Love Black Girls? Because I do and um, want to make sure that we have some movement. You know, um, I'm going to read what the city model is. The city of Madison is a safe and healthy place for all of us to live, learn, work, and play. So I'm going to just read a couple more things, especially because it says healthy and safe. And then it says live, learn, work, and play. Now, looking at statistics that's been going on um, in Wisconsin, Wisconsin unemployment disparity between blacks and whites has been the worst in the nation for a number of years. And looking at unemployment, also underemployment, because that's important to note. Um, Mostly that's impacting, you know, black women. Um, Our homelessness rate is off the chart where uh, black people make up 5% of the population in Dane County, yet they make up almost half of the homeless population. So I'll say that um, I question the model The city of Madison is a safe, healthy place for all of us to live, learn, work, and play. We know that the infant mortality rate in Dane County is one of the worst in the nation for Black babies. We know that um, stress-related diseases are rising in Wisconsin for Black people. And I think it's important for us to notate that it doesn't matter if you're a rich Black person or if you're a poor Black person, the impact is yet the same. So does Madison love black girls? No. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> okay, tell me more about that. Because you know I'm already mad. Just reading that shit. <laughs> like what? For all. So tell me that, more. Why? Well, that's what threw me off. Um, a safe, healthy place for all. I mean, you've already said some of the t- statistics, but let's even talk about the opportunity gap in education. Like, our black and brown kids are falling behind at a, a higher rate than anybody else. So it, it's too many. They make it look good on the outside, but once you cut into it, it it's horrible. It's mm-hmm. horrible for black and brown people to live in Madison alone. You know what I'm saying? Like I mm-hmm. said, I've been here since 2003. I thought I was making big moves and I quickly learned, um, the only thing different, there's just more people who look like me, but we still going through the same things that I went mm-hmm. through in a white town an hour away from here. So, wow. yeah, it, it, it's not. It's not. They they make it look good, but once you get here, it's horrible. So, Ayomi, you're on campus, and you're running for District 8, and I've done, I'm a UW graduate as well, and I, for many years, have done Black Women Heal work with Black women students on UW-Madison campus. And it has been described as a very volatile place, particularly for Black women, an unsafe place for Black women. Um, does the UW-Madison campus love Black girls? Love black Absolutely, women? absolutely not. <laughs> no way. I remember, for example, my freshman year. Um, so I was involved in While I was interning, I was also part of two research programs, one for the School of Law and School of Pharmacy. You know, Black girls have to be on top of everything. Right. (laughs) And so I was, you know, making strides in those areas. And I remember having a meeting with a lady I've never talked to. She was a part of the 
a facilitator for the research program. She didn't know me. She didn't know my grades or anything like that. I walked in and was talking about my future presentations regarding the school of law. And she had mentioned like, oh, like, do you, what, why are you wanting to become a lawyer? And I told her my reason. And I told her, you know, like, every time my family goes to the hospital, we end up dead. I want to become like a lawyer. I want to do medical malpractice because this is real. This is affecting me. And I think I want to become a resource for my family so they know how to protect themselves when they're in a vulnerable state. I think that's a fine reason. She then told me that um, based on my answer, I could never become a lawyer. And I said, I paused. I then asked a question like, why do you think that? She was like, your answer doesn't seem like you... I don't know. I just don't feel it or whatever. And this again, this is a white lady. And so I was like, um, this is real. This is like, I'm not talking out of just like, I want to become a lawyer for money. No, this is like something that I'm dedicated to becoming. I will become. And she was, I thought maybe she was saying that because I was a freshman, she was like, don't kind of stay on that path, like explore your options because you never know. And so I told that to her, I was like, maybe you're saying that because you want me to explore a little bit more or different things like that. I gave her all the excuses in the world. She still said, no, I just don't see you becoming a lawyer. Maybe you could become a teacher or maybe you become an accountant or something. Or a maid. Right. Basically. And I will never forget her name. And I promise myself on that day, I promise myself, because that name is burned into my retina, that when I become a lawyer, I'm sending my degree to her office, writing a report, letting everyone know how I was treated by this university, how this lady affected me to this day, and how I I can't stop. I can't quit because of people like her. Period. Why did you feel like you needed to make an excuse for her as a white woman? Because I think a lot of times Black women jump in front of white women. I think it has everything to do with slavery and what we was charged to do. But why did you feel like you needed to make that excuse for her ignorance and bigotry? I think it's really because, you know, I'm in Wisconsin. Racism doesn't really come that direct. It's usually through policy. It's usually like, it's never, it's passive aggressive remarks. It's never that straightforward. And so I didn't want to jump the gun and be that angry black woman. And she meant something else. So I was trying to give her different options because I just wasn't used to that here. I was like, not here. You know, you do that through money, do that somewhere Mm -hmm, else. mm -hmm. But yeah, so I, 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 you know, give excuses and you know, to that end, I do feel like I should have been more upfront about how that made me feel, but I do think that I'm not letting it go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I hope it doesn't still have you though. And I think this is what happens so much for black women and for black girls, particularly in this community. We are harmed by the words of and actions of white women quite often through social work and through education. And I think a lot of times what they have said and done holds us. How do we shake that? Because I don't want that to have you because that wasn't no kind of truth. Yeah. So one of the biggest things that I realized, um, and I'm still like learning, um, but is self-care. I think, Mm -hmm. you know, after I had that experience, the first person I went to was my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And 
um, she was just reiterating, like, you're strong, like, you're going to see that a lot, it's going to happen, and teaching me ways in which I can let it go, because, you know, I don't want to die early from keeping that burden Mm -hmm. on my heart. Right. I always go to black women when I, you know, need guidance or something like that happens because Mm -hmm. it's going to continue to happen, but I need to keep my peace and, you know, continue to be strong. So Brandy Grayson, for example, in this community, Sabrina Madison, they've all been formidable leaders, but another person who recently passed away has always been um, there for me. Her name is Miss Carrie and she worked at West High School and did the 4.0 program. And she was someone I would come to all the time after school and ask questions and tell her my ideas. And so I keep her memory alive because she is the reason why I was able to be at this point and remain strong. Mm -hmm. And her lessons are still with me today. Absolutely. She was a very, very strong force in this community. And I'm just going to say on a side note, I wouldn't tell that woman, boo, go and get your degree. It ain't none of her business who you become. (laughs) None of it. JL, how about you? Does does Madison love black girls? <laughs> I took a gasp when you asked this UW Madison. I was like, <gasps> okay. <laughs> no, no. Um, you know what? What I will say though, because I think of the three of us speaking, I have been here the longest and kind of grown up as a child. Now raising my own children in this community. What I will say is I remember being the only black girl in my entire grade all through elementary school. Um, there are it is much more diversity and not just in race. We're talking about ethnicity. We're talking about lingu- linguistics, language. Um, I'm not going to knock Madison all the way. Mm-hmm. I will say uh, it seems like we've taken some a lot of steps backwards, but there are some some forward progression things as far in terms of at least having conversations about mm-hmm. what the rates of equity report, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Oh, wow. We're finding out about this. And we're like, yeah, we've been living it our whole lives, y'all. Um, right. So, you know, we, we, we are very intelligent. We have the flagship university here. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of intelligent folks. So for to have the intellect, to have the resources and still be where we are is mm-hmm. my frustrating point. But right. No, they have not demonstrated whether or not that's a hashtag of Black excellence, championing uh, or putting on some some Black-led efforts to celebrate Black girlhood, such as yours, such as the Black Girl Magic Conference. You know, we've created these things of our own, and it's funny how folks take credit because they've put the money behind it or they slap their logo saying, oh, we're going to sponsor this, right? So, Mm -hmm. but who's actually doing the work? And that to me is what forms my answer of no, because Mm -hmm. Black women are always doing the work and always saving ourselves and everybody else. Right, right. And I'll throw in there as a caveat that my funding for the work that I've been doing over the years doesn't come from Madison. I couldn't get funded in Madison to do work with Black girls. White women could get funded to do work in Madison with black girls, I couldn't get funded. My funding comes out of state. So they can't even say that, but I know exactly what you mean. And I think Madison in many ways loves black men. I'm just going to pause for a moment for Jesus to come in. <laughs> Please. Madison loves black men. They love black men in leadership. They support black male leadership, but it becomes something different when black women begin to assert themselves. Y'all, why do we always have, because I think I've heard all three of you mention 
I don't want to be the angry black woman. Why do we always got to be concerned whether or not we are the angry black woman? Y'all tell me something about that. Anybody? I, I can start. <laughs> um, I think, you know, that's something, especially in when I was working in um, the Capitol, it's something that stays with you, like mm -hmm. a, almost like a label that you can't get rid of, even if you're smiling. If someone claims that you're that angry Black woman, it's like something that you you can't like undo. And it, I think that's the fear. It's like being labeled as that. It creates a lot more obstacles than we already have. Um, and it's frustrating because we have the right to be upset. You know, mm -hmm. we have the right to get frustrated and to have our emotions and, and not worry or be concerned with how they're going to be received by someone else because that's mm -hmm. how we feel. Um, but I do think that's something that a lot of leaders um, that I was encountering there had mentioned to me is just like, you know, watch tone. And that was also something um, that I saw even during this election process when people are trying to educate you, but they're not Black spaces. They're just trying to help BIPOC spaces. And they teach you to how you should watch your tone and how you should dress for interviews. And it's not... It's a way of kind of telling us to whitewash ourselves in spaces mm -hmm. that we should, you know, stand strong and be our own person. Um, and that's something that I'm still seeing to this day when I'm talking to people who have run in the past or um, just about campaigning because, you know, all of us, this is our first campaign and um, we're trying to get guidance on on how to be better representations of our our community um and that's something that i've been noticing and it's it's definitely frustrating and i i want to continue that conversation because mm -hmm. you know saying oh you're well spoken or oh watch your tone these are ways to kind of box someone in and i should never i should never apologize for taking up space right should black women start crying more Oh, no, would, that no. would that help us? Because white women's tears seem to go far. <laughs> they seem to be really powerful. So should we start crying more, JL? Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, when you asked the question, I was really thinking about a way to say it. it. And I think this is basically the dilemma, right? We we know what we're met with when we um, you know, to coin Pastor G's, when we exhibit or demonstrate justified anger, it's still not enough. But they justify all of the things that happen to us in the name of the law or law and order, right? It, it's almost like I, being here, that that's instantly where I go. This is a stereotype. This is what they believe of us. And if I rise to this occasion, no matter whether or not it's justified or people feel defensive, that is what they're going to do. And they're not going to hear me and my message. And so it's a tricky balance. I'm not saying that it's right. Um, you know, as I kind of explained earlier, that that confidence and unapologeticness is, is just growing um, with the frustrations, with seeing the lack of action and movement. But yeah, I, I think it's really, we don't want, that is not our, the majority representation of us. We have to go there. Mm -hmm. That does not capture, you're not capturing when we're talking about, you know, how long has Tony Robinson been gone from us and Almost taken from years. us. And the fact, you know, Iomi just brought up Matt, Matt Kinney. It, it's justified. And we see it again and again and again. And one thing that I remember is um, when Bob and Jean was, was gunned down in his house by that uh, 
officer who thought she was going into her own apartment. I remember Mark Lamont Hill's words when his brother hugged her and said that he forgave her in court of this country doesn't deserve black people because again and again, after being brutalized, murdered, abused, oppressed, marginalized, all the things, right? We still keep trying to put ourselves in boxes so folks can hear us just for our humanity. You know, my everything black about me melted when I saw his brother get on that stage and cry, can I, can I give her a hug? And then the judge was hugging her and then the bailiff was rubbing her head and wiping her tears. Everything black about me melted to the ground. And I agree with what you're saying because it's like all the atrocities that we have withstood we still don't have the right to say, I don't like that. I don't want that. America can be better. I'm angry. We still don't have the right to be angry. It's almost as if there is an expectation to say, thank you, America, for all you have done for me. <laughs> and I just, I can't. Yeah, it took me a while to find my black again after that foolishness. I didn't got off track thinking about I'm that. Sorry. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah, I just melted with that. Okay, so let, here we go. So how do you think your lived experience and perspective will shift the conversations in your district? And I, I mean, I'll start with you, particularly, you know, focus on campus. How do you feel like your experience and perspective will shift the conversations that are being had and at the top of the conversation, we said that in, in 2019, the first woman had been elected in District 8 in 20 years. And there's never been a black woman who has been um, an alder District 8. So what do you bring that will shift the conversations that need to be had? I think, you know, in the student district, um, one of the things that I've noticed is that experience um, with those in office. I think, you know, I'm bringing a sense of those networks and connections that I've already created, um, which will only help us to push legislation as because we need to move with that sense of urgency, understanding that there's people at the other ends of these policies, but those policies that we push need to work. And they need to push not only at a local level with municipal powers, but at a statewide level and with um, the school board as well. And so I think I represent that community of um, connecting that, that bridge so that we're able to push legislation. My district is a student area, mostly campus, and it doesn't really have a lot of um, development going on. So I'm able to write legislation, and I think that's what we need. We need more written legislation that we can then mobilize people behind. I'm also able to work with our developers to talk about those international students and immigrants who are dealing with so many concerns right now um, with their tenant, like as a tenant with their landlords, um, because for example, this is my my first apartment, right? Um, but if I were to be co-signed by anyone and I don't, I'm not from here, my parents aren't here, then how will I, you know, be independent, get my own place? Talking about there's problems going on, who do I reach out to? So because I'm Gen Z and I guess I'm techie or <laughs> I'm claimed to be techie, I'm using social media as a bridge to communicate with our constituents in a way that we've never seen before. 
I always looked at politicians from an outsider in perspective, but now I'm able to kind of shift the way I saw politics. I'm trying to make it a space that allows conversation. We hold live streams, we have hard conversations, but those are the things that I want to do when elected. And I think it's important because, you know, there's so many students here that are just silenced by this university, um, by this community, and it's important that we um, provide more access and resources to them so that we can hear their voice. Because once I found mine, or I'm still finding mine, I want to make sure that others can, you know, use their voice and they feel like they are capable and that they um, have support. And that's something that I think I'll be bringing to the table, specifically in this district. I love it. Nikki, you know, I heard you mention, and I often hear Black people when they're speaking, talk about Black and Brown. Do we hear brown people say black and brown or is it just black people who feel like they need to say black and brown? I I think maybe only black people do say that Um, just being inclusive. You know, I don't want to leave anybody out because, you know, I guess that's why the the term BIPOC came about, you know, to really include everybody. And um, for me, that's what I'm trying to do in my district is be inclusive to everybody. Um, Thankfully for me, um, you know, I, I'm getting white supporters that are talking to their neighbors and their friends and bringing them on board for me, you know, cause once somebody talks to me and they really understand who I am and where I came from and my lived experiences, um, you know, they start to open up their eyes a little bit more. Their eyes have been closed shut since Skidmore has been running this district for the last 19 years. But people are really open and ready for change. And, and they're excited to see somebody with this energy and, and compassion and understanding. Um, so everybody's really excited. And I think now my district, like now younger kids, younger families and, and people with children are really starting to move into the neighborhood now. And so I think that that's really helping my chances because, you know, I was a young mother. I was, I gave birth at 19 years old and I had my second child at 21. So I can really relate to people in, in many different levels, you know? So for me, that's just being, uh, being able to be open and be available to my constituents and let them know that I am here for them. And I want to make the change and bring power to them and all the people of District 9. I'm not trying to leave anybody out. I want everybody to be included in this decision-making process. Wonderful. Now, JL, I know, you know, you mentioned earlier that you were a teen mom. I know right now that you you work with the homeless population in in Madison, Dane County. How does your lived experience um, bring the option for, for power and a different perspective to your district? That's a tricky answer for me. So um, I've almost been thinking about my campaign in two realms, Mm -hmm. where obviously the way that we have elections set up for local races are only district residents can vote for who will represent them. And then obviously the council provides oversight to their districts, but the city as overall. And so one of the most startling kind of disturbing revelations to me during this campaign has been how can I again be that uh introduce myself 
give my backstory, express that vulnerability, because I don't know about y'all, Iomi and Nikki, but it seems like everybody wants your leg, your arm, your ankle, like, tell me more about yourself. Like, you haven't checked out my Facebook page, my Instagram, my my website, like, what more do you want? (laughs) Um, But my district is pretty moderate. And so, yes, there are Black families, there are Black women that live in my district, but Unfortunately, right now, especially with COVID, I'm finding that that's not the folks who I'm saying, oh, you need to talk to this person. You need to call this person. It's Mm -hmm. old, I wouldn't want to say old, but retired white folks who either were elected officials themselves or are well connected within the the political realm and have a vested interest. Mm -hmm. Um, And so it's almost like the reason, the very same reasons of why I believe that my time is now and that I need to be running are almost reasons that I feel are limited in my own campaign to just get on the ballot and, and progress, you know? So, um, but I think capitalizing or, or using the, taking advantage of the fact that I'm the only woman, I'm the only black woman and I'm the only parent brings additional ideas Mm -hmm. that I think are are more relatable. So yes, there may be a generational difference, but um, (laughs) one of the things I've gotten good at too is is telling stories to make myself or my situation relatable. And I I keep saying, I don't want to identify or call myself a politician, but it's like, dang, I sound like one. (laughs) Like, you know, oh, well, uh, you know, uh, how do I find uh, commonality in a two-parent household, a white male, a, a white female, they're older, retired, they have grandchildren, their children are maybe older than me and my age is, I'll go back to when I was a CNA and I worked at Attic Angel Place and mm. you know, trying to connect. A lot mm-hmm. of my experience not only was just taking care of folks who obviously, you know, at the end or towards the end of their lives needed more care than um, their families could provide. But I had rich experiences of hearing Mm. about their backgrounds, what they did. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I broke a barrier between myself and a resident that kept calling me the colored girl. You know, I took it personally, but, you know, we we ended up developing a relationship. And so I consider myself a multi-generational connector where I think I thrive so much in the interpersonal, it'll be hard to not find commonality. We can mm-hmm. disagree. We don't have to be friends, but just a commonality and the fact that we're humans. And what I will say about my district is they are very engaged and they want action and they want bold leadership. And so being able to align the things that may not make me an ideal or uh, recognizable leader in their eyes is going to be the very reasons of, nope, here's why. Here's why. Well, I may not know about this, but let me tell you what I do know about. I know what it's like to go to the Aberg Center and feel like you got to tell everybody your whole life in order to be like, yes, I am poor and I need these benefits. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I know what it's like to be cut off my benefits because I messed up on a deadline being a student trying to get my kids to and from daycare. Like, it's just those perspectives that are so crucially missing from these decision making entities. That yes. really doesn't take a lot, but it's common sense for us. So yes. with folks like us saying like, yo, did you realize like how this impacted the the increased vehicle registration? I know mm-hmm. there was a whole thing on the council last year, but it's just bringing the story and the real life situation to the policy or to the impact. 
I love that. You know, (laughs) no, I love that because often I think people feel that black people can't speak for everyone. So like as, as black people, if we see um, a swimsuit or a magazine or a book or art in our doctor's office and it's all white, we're supposed to be able to see that means all of us, like white is universal. But I think oftentimes when we're looking at opportunities for leadership, when we are black, there is the thought that we can only speak to the black experience. We can't be a voice for all. We can't have an expanded perspective. And so um, how do you feel that you are uniquely qualified to speak to the experience of all the residents in your respective districts, Nikki? Well, I plan to be communicating with them. Um, That's the only way I'm going to be able to bring their perspectives is if I actually communicate with them and talk to them. And I'm such an outgoing um, and I want to engage people and relational person that um, it's really not hard for me. Making these cold calls to my constituents, I actually enjoy this because they know that I care and I'm taking the time and I'm actually taking notes on what they say. So uh, that's really how I plan to bring the voices to my district um, from my district. I should say is just putting myself out there, being active and actually engaging and listening to folks. That's what I plan to do. That sounds good. How about you, JL? Kind of similar. Um, Folks want to be heard. I mean, I think a a big thing that probably all of us and all candidates are hearing and will continue hearing for years is it's not pretty work. It's not sexy work. It's not appealing. It's the getting emails and phone calls about traffic lights and lanes and curbs and streets. Um, But really, we, we are Black women. If no one else, we are the the group, the class, the population, whatever you want to call us, of knowing what it means to feel unheard Mm -hmm. or not having our voices heard. And so just that perspective alone is where, again, like call it a, a, a plus, a pro or a con for just how we have survived as a people. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of that catering to where you got to make excuses or it's okay. They're Mm -hmm. well-intentioned. being able to listen to people. And I think transparency is key to vulnerability and transparency. Mm-hmm. Those are things that are lacking in politics. And so mm-hmm. no, you, you won't be able to tell everything, but you got to be real when, hey, this is out of the scope of what the council can do. This is what mm-hmm. we need to do and come together with concerted efforts like we're going to go here. Um, but it's also, you know, I don't know a lot about that. Um, Right now in our season of campaigning, there's a lot of questionnaires and endorsements and interviews happening. And a lot of the questions are the same. And I find myself regurgitating information, which isn't bad because you want to stay in message. Right. But um, that's the thing. A lot of times I want to say, hey, I I need to know more about that. I need to educate myself about that before I can actually say I have an opinion on it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Part of that is listening to the needs of folks. I have Mm -hmm. to have my own ideas and thoughts and solutions, but I have to be um, flexible to mend if my solution doesn't meet who I'm representing and their needs, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what's the question you feel like you would love to have been asked that you haven't been asked yet in an interview? So I'm going to push back. I I do really appreciate the question and, and with wordplay, it switches up. What makes you stand out from your competitor? What do you have that no other candidate or your opponents? And um, 
for me, it's almost a limitation, whether wording, writing, you're limited to word count or characters, mm -hmm. and, or you're limited to minutes. So it's like, how do I fit everything that I need to say into this little box? Mm -hmm. So I, I wish that we had opportunities to have conversations. You know, they call a lot of our speaking engagements forums and debates, but literally it's just spitting out information and maybe yielding a question. I would love it if during a forum, um, especially broadcast or streamed on Facebook, uh, someone who's answering the question can pop up on the screen. Hey, my name is, or um, the wart, uh, I'm sorry, W-O-R-T debate that Iomi and I have been through and Nikki is gonna be going through soon. Um, it is, <sighs> I'm gonna say it, say it. <laughs> um, the rebuttal process. I wish some folks could just jump in and be like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, what, what does that mean? One of my opponents uses equality for opportunity. Sir, what does that mean? <laughs> but again, you know, I'm like, oh, even in the WRT debate, I was like, oh, I want to rebut. Oh, I want to mm -hmm. rebut that. But like, nobody else did. So I might have looked like an adversary or like aggressive. And so it's, or an angry black woman. Hello. Yeah. So I just wish that the with time constraints, I get it. But I wish we had conversations and authentically and we could challenge each other. Um, we don't have to think the same, but like, let's have broad reasons and explanations and explore what people are saying, myself included. I love it. Ayomi or Nikki, did you have anything on that? I, I had one little thing. When you were mentioning the WORT, that just really, I was so mad afterwards. Not just, not about the debate at all. It was more about the fact that often when coming to like media or whatever about, um, you know, having conversation if they reach out, it always feels like they're trying to pit Black people against each other. There always has to be an MLK versus Malcolm X. There always has to be two. And it's like, no, you have to understand if I'm running against another person of color, you sh that shouldn't be a shock. You should expect that because that's going to happen more and more. You need to be asking questions about our experiences a little bit more because that's what we need more of diversity of experience what do you bring to the table not just about your lived experience as well but although that is relevant I think there has to be more you have to bring a sense of of knowledge you have to come in ready prepared and so sometimes like you want to come into a conversation or a debate and you just want to explain your platform a little bit more, provide insight. And then it seems like sometimes you get questions that make another person want to attack you. And that should never be the case. And it makes me so frustrated because I've seen here at UW, um, I was in a dorm called Witty. And there was this white guy just pushing this black guy, pushing and pushing until he just broke and just punched him right in the face. And everybody was so scared because they knew that he was going to get all the repercussions they were going to ignore whatever the situation was and he might 
you know, mm-hmm. get expelled from this university that he's worked so like he's the smartest person I know. And then when I went back to my dorm, I cried for so long. Like, I did not go to my room. I just stayed in the lobby to watch someone get broken and be at that space because of what someone else did. I cannot stand when media tries to pit like me and my opponent against each other when it's two black women running. Just accept that it's two black women running and judge us based on our answers, judge us based on our experiences and that should own that should be the qualification just that so that's something that I'm like still kind of dealing with as well as you know they never ask questions about how colorism plays a role in your elections they never talk about how like as a black woman and you're also with other people of color like how how does that work you know how do you run a campaign being a black person because it's different um you can't run it like how I reach out to my mentors who are usually white um how do we run a campaign? It's it's completely different for me. My approach, my tone, my how I approach conversations, it's everything's different. And so that's something that they I haven't been asked. Um just relating to, you know, campaigning, how is it different? Um, but that's something that I have noticed too, which is media. There's a lot to unpack with what you said. So there's there's two different things I want to ask you about. And um one is the whole idea that you are running against another black woman. And I think we get pressure from black people about that. And I think we get pressure from white people about that. I think we have such a lack mentality when it comes to politics as black people that we have that, oh, you know, we better not have two black people running. We need one and let's all get behind that one black person. Um, and I think from from white people, they bring a perspective of that, but no one asks why are there four white men running for office and how do you think you differ and why is that? Nobody asks that question. So it's un, I think it's unfair. And, and I'm the type of person, honest to God, I don't like to see two black people running against each other. And I'll tell you why, because I want to vote for everybody black. <laughs> I don't like having to choose, but the way I feel about politics, I want to have to choose. I want to have more than one black person to vote for. That's progression for me. That's progression. Um, I guess that was more of a statement. But what I want to ask you about, tell me about colorism. Because would we have had the first black president, if he was chocolate, would we have the first black female vice president if she was chocolate? What? How does, how does colorism, you think, come into play, Iomi? So I remember, and I've been talking about Kamala for a minute. I've been, I held my tongue during the election. You know, I couldn't say anything about Biden, but now <laughs> um, I've been talking a little bit about Kamala to like my friends. And I think it, I don't think it would have been the same um, if she were dark skin um, because she has that line. And a lot of people reiterate, I'm speaking. That is the definition of an angry, like that would never, I just think that that's something that is a perfect example of how colorism is being played out in real time. Um, It also shows itself if we look at, for example, I saw on Twitter, there was a news reporter who was like, first time wearing braids, wish me luck, I'm really nervous. 
I was so I was shocked. I was shocked to see her hesitation and fear, but that is so real because I forgot that I had the same fear. I have braids right now, and that was something of a concern to me when I, you know, was taking pictures for literature, for example, or doing graphics. Like I have braids, I should switch, I should change it to having like straight hair, like short hair, things that I typically see like Michelle Obama doing, like you know, something that wouldn't scare white people. That was my fear. Because my voters, I'm at a PWI. This is a white campus. And those are the people that are voting. And braids, mm-hmm. for some reason, is is scary. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that they don't understand. And people don't like to ask questions. They just tend to stay away. Um, and so, you know, that was a concern of mine. And it's still, you know, how I how I do my graphics, for example, how I present myself, I have to consider that who who's going to be on my team, because my team is diverse, my team does not, my campaign manager is a dark skinned black woman, president of the ACLU, like that's my campaign, it's a cabinet filled with a powerful, diverse women and men. Um, And I think, you know, I chose that cabinet because I knew that, you know, they're seeing the same things. They have the same fears as me, but they're still powerful in their own in their own regard. Um, And they're going to bring that to the table as well as their just passion for politics and and local government. And so um, that's, you know, what I've noticed in my in my campaign. Yeah, I appreciate that. Did either one of you want to reply to that as well? Um, I think I'll just say that, um, you know, that's probably why I say black or brown people for myself, just because um, I am lighter skin and I have brown skin, you know, so it's like I already said earlier, it's just inclusion, but no colorism is very real and it and it's terrible when it's in, in the race itself, you know, oh, black girls look better than light girls, light girls look better than black girls. And there shouldn't be no competition. You know, black is beautiful, no matter what shade you are. Um, DNA is a funny thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, My children are multiracial and they all have different skin tones. So, um, you know, people need to be, stop being so judgmental um, about what's on the outside. It's really about what's in the inside. And that's one thing that I wish they would ask more about, you know, like, let, let, let's sit down and have a real conversation, be transparent. You know, mm-hmm. everyone wants to make sure everything looks good on the outside. Oh, you can, you, you can fill out the endorsement forms. that looks good on the outside and you can recite what you wrote, you know, that looks good, but let's get down to business. Let's get down to the inside. Cause that's what we want to focus on about what's going on in our community. We got to get to the heart of what's going on in our community. Right. Yeah. So why why don't we get to the heart of what's going on inside of my politicians so I know who to really vote for? Because yes. people can put up a front any way they want to. They can make it look good on the outside, but what's on the inside is what really matters. Absolutely. Absolutely. I just wanted to make one comment that um yes, colorism is real and I'm I know that it's showing up in some of the races right now within the county and city. In what way, Jo? Well, I mean, I think Iomi kind of gave an example about in her race, particularly, there's two black women, black identifying women who are running and some of the questions or uh, comments that are posed just naturally indicate their opponents. But 
also running on the same identity and there's there's a gumption in that right like that should be mm-hmm. celebrated it shouldn't be right. like I only said a an anomaly or surprising but I think um one thing that I personally am ex- experiencing too is um through deconstructing some of the harmful educational practices about, for instance, through MMSD, how I was taught about my history that I'm now unpacking as an adult of like, that wasn't how, what? Mm -hmm. Um, The same way is we have more folks who are leaning into and embracing their identity. So one thing like to be vulnerable myself, um, I am a daughter of an immigrant. My father is not from the country and became a citizen when I was in high school. Um, and that isn't always an identity that I told people about, no matter my, my grandfather owned Jamaica, but it was something that I hadn't embraced yet. And I think one thing that's uncomfortable for me is those of us who don't have the option to step outside of our blackness or what people see, it is almost infuriating or like a slap in the face when folks who have lighter complexions or um, different backgrounds where they're able to slip in and out with and and ambiguity. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of folks I see uh, uh, under the guise of people of color and Mm -hmm. I like BIPOC better, but again, I'm always going to be black. I'm I'm black Mm -hmm. because our communities do not face the same issues. So stop molding us into this pot. Um, But it's also, shoot, like you get to jump in and out of when you want to be a black man or a Asian woman or, you know, and that to me is a conversation I think we need to have as folks are embracing identities like that sometimes is tension in the room where you don't want to attack somebody, but it's like, I almost feel like you, uh, not plagiarizing, but what is that called when you're like in a spit, like an imposter almost, mm-hmm. or where were you? Or, <laughs> <laughs> you know, some of those things come up. So to me, it's yeah. less about co- colorism comes into play, but it's also have folks with that, have the identities and the visual characteristics of diversity shown up and done the acts that contribute to people that look like them. Yes. And, you know, I don't like that BIPOC. I don't like it. Um, I don't like all these new little letters and all this kind of stuff, because in the end, when it comes to the B of the BIPOC, there's nobody standing up for us. The I or the POC, they're not standing up for us. I have been in meetings with um, a lot of the um, work I've done with women of color, where I have looked into the faces of what we would call women of color, the, the, the IPOC, who have just told me they're not women of color. They're not people of color. That's not who they are. I, I, I've, I've had Latino women, I've had Native American women, indigenous populations um, tell me they're not a person of color, you know? Um, and I'm like, well, then why are you at this woman of color event? Why do you accept money for uh, uh, people of color communities? Why do you accept the scholarship to a woman of color event if you're not a woman of color? And so when it comes down to it, there's nobody standing up for the beat and that BIPOC. And I think we have to be careful as black people being politically correct 
which is probably why I will never run for political office because I talk crazy and I am an <laughs> angry black woman and I embrace every bit of that and I don't apologize for it. And um, I like to say shit and fuck. So I just don't <laughs> think I would be the person to run for politics. But I just don't like all that political correctness. And I think we have to be very careful because language is really, really important. And we got to be say what we mean and mean what we say and be very careful. We don't get swept up in this. And because I don't think a black person came up with BIPOC. <laughs> so why are we saying it? Why are, why are we creating that false reality like we are BIPOC? Yeah. Anyway, I just went off on that. Iomi, you said something that made me think about this. This is non-political at all. But you talked about the team that you have. Very powerful team of various experiences and things like that. How do other young people get and I'm impressed that you have a powerful team around you as a young as a young woman, as a young politician. I think it's fabulous. How do other young people, particularly other young black women who are striving for p- professional excellence, educational excellence, who are striving for leadership and doing things outside of the political realm, how do they build a team like that around them? So how my team um, kind of formed, I, the only people that I told I, that I was, you know, thinking about running, it wasn't a big community. I talked to Lolo, um, the aunt of Tony Robinson. I talked to a couple people that I used to organize with because, you know, running for office, that was a strategic move of, you know, making sure that we're keeping that revolution going, um, that we're organizing in the streets. So as the co-founder, executive director for Impact Demand, we had to keep mobilizing people and using our voice, not only in the streets, not only protesting, but, you know, at a city council level. So I wanted to, you know, make sure that I had the support of my community that we're going to continue pushing. And then I just put it on Facebook. And I was like, I can't turn back if it's out in the world. I put it on Facebook and I just saw so much support from my community. It was overwhelming. And that's when I was just like, I can do it because I'm running with my community. We're seeing that with Brandi Grayson, for example, her For the People, By the People um, campaign. And that's the whole point of, of an alder. I feel like you should be amplifying their voice. And so, you know, I'm just a representative for my community. I'm not just my, I'm not just a candidate. And I don't have to act like a politician because I'm an activist. You know, I'm an organizer. I'm a black woman before I am anything else. And um, I always keep that in mind. I think if you if you want to run and you're a young black woman, um, you know, look to your community, look to the black community, um, because especially those entrepreneurs, the people that make it happen in their own regard. I think you need independent support, independent people. Um, and so, you know, you have to rely on your, your community. I think it's important that you do network. Um, so, for example, one of my mentors and someone I interned for for a while, State Senator Latanya Johnson, is a huge supporter. Um, she recently endorsed, and that's who I kind of go for guidance. She's a, dar- a powerful, dark-skinned trailblazer woman who, um, you know, has kind of been through the same things that I've, I'm going through currently, um, but in Milwaukee. And so... I think it's important that you have mentors that you trust, um, you have the community support, 
And you have to just understand that you are capable because roller co- like this whole campaign is a roller coaster. I have my high days, I have my low days, I just enrolled in classes, I have, you know, my 17 credits right now. So like I'm gonna have my highs and lows, but understanding that at the end of the day, it's just a low. Tomorrow's a better day. You are capable, you are confident, you are everything that you need, and just do it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And I, I, I think it's important no matter what phase of life we are in to have mentors. But at the same time, I think it's also important for folks in like my generation to make sure that we are mentoring, to make sure we are touching that younger generation to give them guidance, you know. So I love I love that. Um, okay, I think the last question I have for you wonderful ladies tonight. I almost don't want to let you all go. I really enjoyed this conversation is why should people vote for you? So I'm going to give each of you about a minute just to tell why people should vote for you. You can emphasize any part of your platform that you would like to share. And Ayomi, I'm going to start with you. All right. So, you know, I think the reason why you should vote for me is because I am trying my hardest to amplify your voice. I have experience um, working with state legislators as well as um, working with the city and nationally building coalitions and working with politicians um, on congressional campaigns. So, you know, that network and that experience is something that we need at the table, especially with so many progressive candidates and first time candidates as well. Um, We need to have some Um, knowledge to back up our legislation, as well as efforts to push it, not just on a municipal powers, but statewide, and um, to continue that effort of mobilizing people. At the end of the day, I honestly believe that those most affected by power need to be in power, and um, because they understand how that legislation works. And I want to empower more young people, especially those of color, to run for office because we need you. The time is now, and I would encourage everyone to go to Iomi for number four, alder.vote, Iomi for alder.vote, to check out more about my campaign, the platform, as well as to get involved. We saw a coup happening at the White House. <laughs> we saw a whole coup. Um, right. Not the White House, the state capitol. Right. Or, yeah, right. the state, city yes. capitol, whatever, yes. the capitol. But it's important that we're involved in our democracy because um, we're seeing things play out in real time. They're trying to take away our voice, and we're not going to let that happen. And so get involved, join the campaign and ask questions. (laughs) I love it. You are most impressive, young lady. You really, really are. Thank you. Nikki, why should people vote for you? People should vote for me because District 9 needs a new young voice to represent the most marginalized communities and bring power to all the people of District 9. With my neighborhood organizing skills, I'll be able to effectively communicate and advocate for all of my constituents. As a community organizer, a mother, first-generation college graduate, and deeply rooted neighborhood leader, I have the experience firsthand the issues that need tackling in this district. As a Black mother with a degree in human services, living, working, and raising her children in poverty and one of the most segregated districts in the most segregated state. I have lived experiences that no other candidate will have and I have the skills needed to bring change. 
You can find out more information about me on my website, Nikki.vote. That's N-I-K-K-I dot V-O-T-E. Come on, girl, say that. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank JL, you. JL, bring it home for us. Mm-hmm. Yes. We'll vote for you. So I'm excited because I haven't gotten to use this quote outside of uh, written, but um, one of the, I say my Shiro's powerhouses in, in the legislative realm, U.S. Representative Ayanna Presley, she often uses this quote um, when making statements and speeches that the people closest to the pain should be, po- I'm sorry, the people closest to the pain should be closest to the power. And I think that's what we're seeing right now in the large amount of interest, not just of folks of color, black women, but just folks running period. And so um, why should folks vote for me? I am not a stranger to pain and struggle. Um, You know, my identities as that I use as both um, a way to tell my story, but also they make me who I am and they have strengthened me. So, you know, where there's a stigma of teen moms don't, they have less opportunities to advance and they usually live in poverty. Like that is something that I am proud to say. Um, I was a former teen mom, a former recipient of Medicaid, food share, subsidized housing. Um, but with the power and privilege that I've had, I've used my career to give back to my community. And so I think that is what is um voices of lived experience is what is missing currently from the council even though we do have diversity. I hear a lot of times people say, well, it's 40% diverse. But in the the scope of our conversation tonight too, we've, we've kind of talked about certain elements that disrupt that thought or uh, mm-hmm. push back against it. You know, we have colorism. Are you black enough? Are you a person of color enough? Have you been putting on for communities of color enough? Um, how, you know, some of the tools of our oppressor have entered into this very race that all of us are in of pitting each other against one another. Like there can only be one black girl. There can only be one black strong voice on the council. We're here to disrupt that. And uh, we have a prime opportunity to take advantage of the momentum and excitement that we have to create change and move Madison forward to actually say, you know, it's not shocking or I can't figure out where they got the statistics to say Madison is the best place to live and work, (laughs) Um, best place to raise a a family. Um, In all honesty, I I know that I I need to have optimism and I need to keep myself positive, but I'm just running because I hope to provide a voice that is missing and get folks to talk. Um, I'm not going to sit here and think that I'm going to create change overnight or possibly within two years if I am an alder, but I will continue making sure that that lived experience and the voices who have been marginalized and oppressed from the legal process period are with me and coming from my mouth and from the mouths of those folks themselves. And so a vote for me means someone that is going to bring humility, honesty, um, accountability, solution-focused outcomes, and and boldness. And um, il- voting for me will um, be movement to stop the talk and move into action on creating equitable access opportunities and outcomes for all Madison residents, but in particularly for the Black community, because that is who I am and that is who I represent. Um, yeah, and that's me. 
I love it. Thank you. So as we end this conversation, I'm going to read the model of the city of Madison again. It says the city of Madison is a safe and healthy place for all of us to live, learn, work, and play. And we know that Madison has been well documented as the worst place to live for black people with looking at over, you know, looking at 40 points, unemployment, underemployment, poverty, homelessness, and um, health issues and dropout rates. So the fact that this statement is on the website of the city of Madison means that there is a lack of knowledge, acknowledgement of what the experience is for black people in this city. And for that reason, we need you all not just running. We need not just black women voting, but we need black women in office. Ladies, it has been a pleasure and an honor to speak to each of you. I wish I could vote for all of you. Unfortunately, I'm not in either of your districts, but I am rooting for everybody black. Okay. (laughs) Yes. Thank you all for being here on Defending Black Girlhood Podcast. And I look forward to seeing you all shine. Thank you. Thank you. That was a good conversation. And look, we mean this thing. We are not playing. We are committed to defending black girls. And look, we want you to get involved. Please visit Lalata.org to explore the work that we are doing to defend black girls to be safe wherever they are. And look, while you're there, please sign up for our mailing list so that you will not miss one single fearless conversation.